Welcome to a very special holiday-themed interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Timonini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with Tony Award-winning sound designer and composer Fitz Patton. Over the past two decades, Fitz has worked on 25 Broadway shows, providing sound design and, in some cases, also contributing original music. His work both on and off Broadway has garnered him five Drama Desk nominations, including three wins, and two Tony nominations, including one trophy for Best Sound Design for Choir Boy in 2019. Fitz's work can currently be seen on Broadway in the Roundabout Theatre Company's production of I Need That, in which he did both the sound design and composed an original score. But I am talking to him today mainly about the original music and arrangements that he did for the Maltz Jupiter Theater's production of A Christmas Carol in Jupiter, Florida. As this episode comes out, I will be going to see the production later in the day, so I'm very excited about that. But what's so special about this is that Fitz was generous enough to supply me with some of the scoring that is being used in the show, so you can currently hear that underneath me talking right now. And since the 70-minute production of A Christmas Carol is often underscored, we're going to use it throughout the entire episode. So I'm very excited for you to kind of hear all of the different swells and emotions that come with this score. This production of A Christmas Carol is currently scheduled to run through December 10th at the Malt Jupiter Theater, so you have a little bit over one week to go check it out. And as I've said before, I don't think any holiday season is complete without a production of A Christmas Carol, although Fitz might disagree. And we will get into that. Of course, in the show notes, we will have information on where you can purchase tickets to see A Christmas Carol at the Maltz Jupiter Theater if you are in the Florida area over the next week or so. All right. With all of that out of the way, here is my conversation with Tony Award winning composer, with Tony Award winning sound designer and composer, Fitz Patton. Well, Fitz, I would imagine that there are probably very few titles as well known as A Christmas Carol, and everyone has their own favorite version, whether that's uh, the book or, or George C. Scott or the Muppets or even most recently with um, with Jefferson Mays on Broadway. So when you approach writing original music for a production like this, which way do you go? Do you immerse yourself in everything that's been done before so you know what you like and what you don't like? Or do you completely avoid all the previous versions in order to not be influenced by what others have done? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's true. I, 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 I stepped away from that and really um, I asked myself, what is the role of the orchestra and the music? in in the show what voice is it what's it talking about and what's its role in tensioning the play and what how is it what kind of power is it expressing that's driving the show because it's there's some kind of force inside his world and around him and it's a dream that that is is kind of you know sort of psychological it's, you know, the orchestra is both generous and it's very dangerous the way dreams are. So I, I think that, and then also the orchestra really needs to speak as a coherent, a uh, spiritual voice from beginning to end. So it, it's like 
you want the way the songs are orchestrated and the way there's tons of underscore and transitional um orchestral gestures it's the score is a it's it's almost continuous for the 70 minutes really and so it's kind of always hanging around um driving the 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 his complexity and you know encouraging his spiritual evolution you know so i just wanted it to have to feel like you were really listening kind of like to a symphony where there's just very there's yeah. one very strong coherent voice that's moving things along whenever you write music for any play you have to you have to ask yourself what 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 role is the music taking it's like a it's another voice in the play sometimes it has to do things for the for a play that that um how do I want to put it uh that the play may may sometimes in plays there's something is missing in the writing that really needs to be there for the play to 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 really move to another level and sometimes that's that's what's what you are trying to find you know what can it add that is essential and also invisible and uh and also compatible with everything that's happening in the place so it feels like a natural dialogue partner um i i just fell in love with the orchestra's raw power to drive really improbable things <laughs> yeah. yeah well i mean i i think with a Christmas Carol, we've seen so many different versions that I mentioned before that there's so many different ways that you can interpret how music plays a part in the story. But I mean, the fact that music is inherent to this story, it's in the name. It's a Christmas Carol. Like it is music. There, there needs to be music in this. You keep talking about orchestra and, and symphony. So that brings to mind to me, I'm seeing the show this weekend. So, but that brings to mind to me something both grand but also emotional probably in ways that a little chamber piece uh can't do is that fair for this yeah sure uh it's i think when you see it it's it's very cinematic and Mm -hmm. once you're inside the world you're really you're really in there and it keeps you inside inside the world pretty with a really firm grip um and uh, but you know the funny thing about this story, which I realized, it's it's set in Christmas, and it's set around what kind of what the holiday asks of people. But like on a deeper level, it's philosophically um, kind of profound. Yeah, it 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 asks a person. It it says in a way. To be a, a whole person, you you have to you have to accept the totality of what you've done. You have to be open to what is happening in front of you, and and accept and responsibly engage with that. And you have to be willing to imagine what the consequences of not doing those uh, things might be. And that's uh, that's just true in life every day. 
so it's it's really mm-hmm. ultimately i think the the story is spiritually profound and fascinating really when you go to write something that is as complex uh as this especially for writing for something that is orchestral and symphonic how do you how do you go about determining what instruments you're writing for what kind of composition in terms of the musicians is going to be is that a more technical part of the job or is that a feel gut instinct artistic approach there is in the orchestra there is there is so much potential really unlimited potential for what it can express and it's it's nice to use it in massive ways and then it's nice to just pull solo instruments out and make it very very thin and and delicate i think i learned a lot from i think i learned a lot from uh, shostakovich's symphonies because they're 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 by turns incredibly massive and unbelievably delicate and thin but they're they're always really specific about what needs to happen emotionally in the moment. So he may have a hundred players sitting on stage and for 10 minutes, he may, it may be a clarinet, a, a xylophone and a violin. And he just doesn't care. It's about, it's really just about what, what is, what's necessary to keep on opening up the subject. You know, and that's when you thin it down like that, when you bring the mass back in force, you, you know, you may have forgotten ab- about how much power is available in, in, in a moment. When you bring that mass back, it's it can be really astonishing and kind of riveting. So m- moving between large mass and really thin, delicate stuff that could just be two or three instruments in a, you know, in a room is kind of a great it's a really fun thing to play with dramatically stepping aside from a christmas carol what is your favorite christmas song well we 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 ended up not using it (laughs) because it didn't quite fit the moment it's called coventry carol and it's uh it's got it really has a strong flavor from the middle ages like the harmony is is really kind of it's like it's a little pre-tonal and uh and it's unbelievably richly gorgeous and um and it's kind of it's sort of dark and um very uh incredibly moving to experience but it was like we i i asked that we remove it from where we had it in the play because I felt like it wasn't really helping our scene. <laughs> okay. Well, that yeah. that seems uh, like one I'm going to have to go look up and put it uh, in rotation as I'm decorating yeah, my tree this they, weekend. They, we don't, we, in this version, we Paul has has drawn from and requested and and encouraged us to look at um, carols that were that were that were active in the repertoire at the time. So in America, we have our group of songs that we like, and they were, you know, some of them are, are old and from from Europe. Yeah. But many, many of them were written in the 20th century and are, are come from our, 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 our more germane to our contemporary life. Paul has really asked us to look back at carols that would have been sung during the time. And so it was, it's been nice to 
to uh, dig into those and experience that. And maybe that's why the, the orchestra feels uh, a little bit more symphonic in this case, because some of the harmonies and tones of those carols is a little bit more of the time of the symphony and the, the European tradition. So you're saying there won't be any Rudolph or Frosty or I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus in the show this weekend when I go? That is that is almost correct. <laughs> <laughs> almost. We, we close the show with We Wish You a Merry Christmas, and it's really nice when it happens. Okay, that's fair. That's I mean, it. well, I, I wanted to spin off a little bit because it, it, I think people know you from all of the work that you've done on Broadway. They know you wear multiple hats. And I always find it interesting that so many of the major Broadway and major New York and regional sound designers like yourself are also composers. But for those of us who are not intimately or even in some cases vaguely familiar with what the job of a sound designer really entails, we think mm -hmm. of them as two very different jobs. The designer part being perhaps more technical and having to do with mics and levels and making sure people can hear in all the seats while the composing side is more artistic. So I, I wonder for us average theater fans, or I guess even for the for the Tony Awards, since they seem to always struggle with trying to make out what a sound designer does as well, uh, are mm. you able to explain why those two roles are far more similar and have so much overlap than perhaps an outsider would expect? I think it's about, it's sort of, um, it, that comes down to the individual level and it's about, it's about training and also your personal aspirations and, and what you need. So I, I mean, I have a, I came into theater as a composer and I learned to be a sound designer. Um, and so for me, it was a very, I felt it, it was important that I'd be able to, to, to um, shape all of that. Uh, I guess when I very, you know, when I really, very, really early in things, the standard thing was to edit CD tracks and <laughs> and do it that way. And I felt it was, um, I just felt like it wasn't organically. You couldn't really organically make something coherent that way. So I, I, I kept pushing my music into shows. I just kept replacing this that approach with by just doing the music anyway without really talking about it and um and then i think over time you you reach a point where you feel that the chromatic spectrum from uh from music to just sound is with regard to like it's interpretive and emotional importance in in driving or 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 activating um a production that it's like, um, it's just a chromatic spectrum of, of expressivity. And it, it, there really isn't, I, I don't differentiate them very much. And it, it's, it's nice uh, when you write music to include and to write sound design into the music as well, especially in theater. And we're used to it with film. It's really a cinematic technique, but we're used to in film, those two, uh, those two aspects of your oral experience being very active and very um, interwoven. And that was really the aspiration here was to, to create a total oral world that was um, where you felt like the sound and the music were really speaking as one, you know. But I, I with regard to music and other folks, it's the whether you can 
write music that is that is uh i want to say that has an instability to it that makes it interesting and that it has a but it also has beauty and it seems it handles the instrumentation competently and all these things this is just a it comes from a person's individual background and um uh, because i think because i came into theater through the window of music that's kind of just where i started but all the uh, all the designers are different and there are many chicago has many prominent designers that compose and it's it's very much the tradition in that town to to do it that way in new york that's a little bit more um divided and and i think there are a number of reasons for why that's the case depending on especially if you're working in commercial theater there are a lot of reasons why that if that comes about but uh i've had i've had uh some great supporters and lynn meadow and todd hames and lots of folks there that allowed me to continue to develop my compositional technique over the years you know yeah you are currently represented on broadway with i need that speaking of of todd hames in and roundabout yeah when you were putting sh uh, together music and, and sound design i suppose for a show that at its core is a very cluttered and and in some ways claustrophobic show how does that impact what you do on your end of the job like from a visual it's cluttered and 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 claustrophobic from a visual perspective how do you take that into the the auditory side of the presentation right well i mean in that case my assumption like what i i the thing that kind of helped crack that for me was uh if somebody is a hoarder they have a private relationship with all that stuff that nobody else can see or understand and so the hoarding is disturbing to other people and palliative and re you know rewarding to them so there are two scenes in the play where he just wanders around his stuff and plays with it and i thought there it was a really good opportunity to just tell the story about what his interior world is like and and why all this stuff uh to him is has this magic and sense of wonder so it was a that was kind of my my way in on on that you know there are the two worlds in that score there's the plausible world of his situation and the people that are around him and then there's his strange little beautiful private space <laughs> that only he really understands well and that's interesting because earlier you talked about uh, a christmas carol as being literally like in the narrative it, it is a dream but there is also reality in that show as well so even though it's a very different kind of dream state versus reality and i need that it, it does sound like you are kind of approaching it from two different perspectives where one is the external world around Danny DeVito's character and then also the internal side of that is do you find as you're approaching the the scores that you write that you do kind of have to go inside the characters far more than maybe people would think from a film score where you're just kind of doing background music or something you're trying to communicate something that the characters don't actually say in the text on the page I think that's right. I think you want to kind of, you want to continue to hand, kind of hand them a problem. It's like, 
you you want to continue to kind of twist things in the place so that the 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 it never really comes to rest you know um and i think you know momentum is important and also knowing when to stop is important like uh in 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 christmas carol when we dry up all the sound it's kind of a it's you hear silence because you've been in this aural aural world quite a lot so when it goes away it you your your mind turns on and listens in a different way and and uh mark martino the director and i collaborated closely on when those moments would come and they're strangely they're strangely more interesting because there's nothing because nothing is going on you you listen deeper and in some respects sometimes you listen a little you the word isn't deeper but it's like if if there's a critical development in the script that has to do with really shifting the way you're you understand the story sometimes it's often it's a good idea to get completely out of the way so that there is nothing to distract anyone from from they don't have different avenues to there's no they can't take an avenue out of not listening to that moment in a very specific way to to get what's changed so like when when he uh when Scrooge is, is made to look at the the Cratchit family after the death of mm-hmm. uh, their son, we do that completely with no sound. We listen to that scene because you just can't, you can't just, you can't pull the audience's focus in any way. Like they, you know, the mind is like a, it's whatever is going into it. It's spending some energy you know chewing on that whatever it yeah. is and sometimes you just you would don't want them to use one ounce of their energy for anything other than getting into into a certain aspect of the text yeah it's it's like a computer things move a little more slowly the, mo- the more tabs you have opened on your browser That's so right. uh, <laughs> yeah sure minimizing yeah, sure. the tabs always makes things speed up but um, I, I'll, I'll get you out on here on, on a couple questions uh, sure. putting this production of a Christmas Carol aside do you have a favorite interpretation of this story, whether it's the book, a movie, a, a, a TV movie, a stage adaptation? Do you have one that you've uh, particularly enjoyed? I I have to confess that I, uh, um, this is embarrassing, but I have never seen it. What? How is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> Like in my world, because so many of the so many of the um, the these productions once the, once they're established at a theater, they run it every year, and so usually that means for me that I don't have any work at Christmas, and if it's been a long and and grueling year, I will t- turn that focus to my family and my daughter and just take it take a break. So I I I, I felt. Yeah. I mean, I, I really okay. had nothing in my mind when we started this because there was nothing in my mind. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I, I don't know how old your I don't know how old your daughter is, but the Muppets Christmas Carol is is always a good place to start. That's good for people of all ages. So if you do sit down and say, okay. "Oh, I want to watch one," Michael Caine and a bunch of Muppets, it can't be beat. Um, so that's my unsolicited recommendation. It's one of my favorite people in the universe. I got a chance to to, to uh, have a conversation with him. We did a, a play, I did a play with Joe Mantello and John Logan called I'll Eat You Last during Bette Midler. It was a one-woman show. Mm-hmm. We, I opened it with, we opened it with a telephone montage of, uh, that were, would be like what her answer, what was on her answering machine. Uh, people leaving messages for her. And, and so um, Graydon Carter, who was running Vanity Fair at the time and was involved in the show, set up all of these conversations with like Lauren Michaels and Cher and Ali McGraw and all these people. And Michael Caine was amongst them. And I got a chance to talk to him for about 15 minutes. It was really sweet. Yeah, this is a, a little bit of a uh, uh, of a tangent that I didn't think we would get on. But anytime I'm scrolling through social media and one of his appearances on any talk show, but um, like Graham Norton or something over in the UK, those yeah. are those are much must watch clips because he's always hysterical and, and often more insightful than probably he even realizes. But um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, OK, so bringing it back to this production at the, the Maltz Jupiter, like I said, there are many different versions of A Christmas Carol. This one is I was a little surprised, actually, that it was a, a 70 minute show um, mm-hmm. because that, that that conveys to me that there's a there's a lot of plot in there that they have to get through a lot of forward momentum a lot of uh, a, a lot of energy and, and stuff like that so mm-hmm. when you when people come and see this show what are you hoping that they take away from the show itself but also from from the music what is what is the feeling what is the what is the vibe that they should be experiencing while they are there in the theater and hopefully carrying with them throughout the holiday season as they leave I hope that I, I think I hope that they come away um, really having been well. I would like them to feel changed by it, and I think philosophically for me, this revelation that to be a whole person, you you have to accept and understand and live your life as, as a whole thing and um, to understand the, the moral implications of your choices. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, well, it's just, it, it's, it's a, the, the story is such a masterstroke of writing and, but also philosophical insight and, and it's, it's so beautiful to watch people's capacity to feel and experience in the play the the emotions that they go through and the experiences they have but there's people are always striving to be to feel they're always striving to feel joy and to and to find the beauty in their lives and some of his actions has made that difficult for other people uh, so I, I, I think that's I think what what makes it beautiful to experience is just to watch people's capacity for joy and love over and over and over again. I love that. And n- n- no better time for message like that than the holidays. 
Yeah. Well, Fitz, I thank you so much for taking the time to kind of dive deep into your process and, and this show in particular. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm bringing my my eight-year-old nephew with me to come see the show this weekend, and uh, I'm very excited to to expose him to the entire world of, of A Christmas Carol and, and especially this production. So thank you again. Have a wonderful holidays, even if you are going to avoid all things Christmas Carol. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> uh, have, yeah. have a great, uh, great holiday season, and hopefully we'll get a chance to chat again in the future. All right, my friend. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. <laughs>